Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunstreet. Dunstreet is a progressive campaign agency that specialises in community organising and we partner with businesses, organisations, trade unions and social democratic parties across the globe to develop community organising strategies and train leaders to build power from within their community. And in 2022, Dunstreet will continue to work with folks that want to share their stories, inspire others, take action and organise communities for change. To find out how you can partner with Dunstreet, hit us up at dunstreet.com.au. Socially Democratic is also brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Morris Blackburn's dust diseases team have accumulated more than 20 years of experience in asbestos litigation and pride themselves on ensuring that their clients not only receive the best compensation results, but that they are supported during their stressful and traumatic time. Morris Blackburn are looking for a passionate full-time associate to join their dust diseases team in their Brisbane office. And to find out how you can apply for that wonderful job, uh, go to morrisblackburn.com.au forward slash careers. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast out each Friday that dives into the progressive campaigns and the issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. And home we stay, we're going north to... uh, Canberra to a sitting week this week in Parliament and we're going to be speaking to Annika Wells, good friend of the podcast and the federal Labor member for the seat of Lily, which is in Brisbane's uh, northern suburbs, a critical marginal seat for Labor that they need to hold on to in the upcoming federal election and Annika's on the show today to talk about the election campaign amongst many other things, so check that out. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, be sure to give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify when you're done listening to today's episode or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And for all the updates, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. Okay, let's get to today's episode. We are taping this one on a Wednesday afternoon in uh, Melbourne, sunny, sunny Melbourne. But uh, joining me on the line from uh, our nation's capital, Parliament House, Canberra, is the federal member for Lily and uh, a good friend of the pod, Annika Wells. Welcome to welcome back to Socially Democratic. Me and my division bells wish you greetings. I- <laughs> How are you? I'm well. Uh, I was going to say Happy New Year, but I also want to subscribe to the Larry David view of, um, you know, when is it too late to start wishing people Happy New Year? And I think it's basically the 3rd or 4th of January. And then after that, it's just, let's not do that. But um, No, my hope is very much that we will actually see each other in person one day. I think we've done, is this our third one now? And never live. I want to come to the balcony of freedom. Yeah. I want to sit sit from the whiskey glass of freedom. (laughs) You're always more than welcome down to sunny Melbourne to come and have a, have a yak, and hopefully now we um, now that things are starting to change in terms of. Um, I try not to leave the electorate boundaries um, at all, um, and particularly not until I'm re-elected. You are so dedicated, and that's what we yeah. like to see from our federal Labor MPs. Um, I, I do want to talk about uh, the federal campaign, and what, one of the reasons why I wanted to get you on uh, at the start of this year is to it is an election year, and to start to get our focus and our attention turning towards that incredibly important poll, but. Uh, before we do do that, uh, there was a National Press Club address today. Um, Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins both spoke at the National Press Club and um, both women spoke with a great deal of clarity and purpose. And you were in the room. 
I saw your uh, <laughs> mug on TV a couple of times pop up. Um, so I really want to get your own thoughts um, of what you witnessed uh, today. Mm. And first of all, tell me, what was the mood like in the room as both uh, these two impressive women spoke? Oh, golly, electric, electric. I, I, I can't think of a speech that I have borne witness to that had people more edge of their seat compelled waiting on every word than Grace Tain's speech in particular today. Um, couldn't give you an accurate read of the mood of the room because we, it's the event started at 11.30 and we being Labor MPs ripped in there at 12.29 as the broadcast lights were going up for the um, formalities to begin at 12.30 because our uh, caucus, our special caucus about the religious discrimination bill had run um, very, very long. So I couldn't give you a read of what the move was like before or after because we actually all had to leave early as well to get back to the house for question time. <laughs> um, and um, when I got there, I was seated beside Senator Anne Rushton and across from um, Senator Maurice Payne and uh, Senator Jane Hume and next to me, my colleagues, um, Claire O'Neill and Senator Jenny McAllister and the big boss, Anthony Albanese. So it was quite the table really to was. be seated at um, very front next to the stage beside the lectern. And, you know, those girls, sorry, those women um, did not come to F Spiders. They came to hold people to account and to um, make sure that the reforms that they seek um, to be delivered continue to move along. And good on them. It was, it was, it was brilliant. Uh, I noted that both speakers re received a standing ovation f from the floor. Um, yep. And as you just noted in your remarks, so you had two Liberal MPs sitting at your table. Uh, three, yeah. Three. <laughs> did, uh, did they stand? They didn't. I think we should give them credit for turning up in the first place. And on, on my other side, on the next, on the head table with the journos was um, Senator Birmingham. I think they should get credit for turning up. Like most of their colleagues didn't. Um, but they didn't stand um, and that's that's on them for that decision and, and to account for that decision. But um, I do think it was important that they were there as, as actually the ministers with portfolio responsibility for women's safety, violence against women, respect at work, that they actually were there um, and that they got to hear a bit of feedback, a bit of robust feedback about how the year's gone and... Um, what is still to be done, which is, as we know, most of it. Yes, they definitely did get feedback uh, <laughs> from the, the two speeches. Let's, uh, I want to get your takeaways from Brittany Higgins' remarks, first of all, and then we'll go to Grace mm. Thames as well. Mm -hmm. I think um, Brittany Higgins, and I'm, I'm just going to call her Brittany, I don't know her, um, and I hope she doesn't mind, but I'll call her Brittany. Um, I think she does really well in keeping things non-partisan, because it's sort of the easiest thing for the government to dismiss her as trying to assist the opposition, throw them out of government, and she is at pains not to criticise the Prime Minister if she doesn't have to, not to have a chop if she doesn't have to, and I think that goes a long way to her credibility. She's also obviously just a very considered person, um, a clever person, and they, you know, are lost to their ministerial staffing ranks that she isn't there anymore. Um, I think also evident today and um, 
again, having the, the very great privilege of sitting in the chamber and being able to look up at the public gallery yesterday for the acknowledgement um, that the, the parliament gave when we resumed yesterday at noon, the very obvious physical and emotional toll that this has taken on her. And I think not enough is said about the fact that we nearly lost Brittany Higgins a few months ago. Um, it has taken a huge personal toll on her and that she continues to do this and particularly to do things like the National Press Club um, when she, when you could easily say that she has done her bit for the cause, I think is, is to her credit. So her contribution was, I think, very considered, very designed to be something that, you know, Liberal ministers can can come to meet her on that, that is inclusive and um, that, that seeks to meet people where they are whilst holding people to account. I mean, the, the Prime Minister copped it a few times in her speech and um, so he should. Um, did you want me to go straight on to Grace or did you have a specific question about No, I, I, one thing that yeah. I, uh, I remarked that, uh, stood out for me from um, Brittany Higgins' speech, and I want to get your thoughts on it. Was she she talked about the national conversation around uh, gender violence and workplace sexual harassment, and she said she spoke of it as this issue is discussed as if it was per perpetrated by no one and inflicted on no one. Mm. And I want to get your thoughts mm. on that. I thought that was such a strong um, observation of where things have gone in the last twelve to however long this has been dragging on since. Yeah. yeah, that's um, so that's just the Senate voting again. Um, I think she is astute when she says that because, firstly, it's an issue that has not been talked about enough for decades or an issue that's been, you know, misdiagnosed. Um, secondly, there is now public discourse about it thanks to people like her, like many other survivors that have come out of this building, um, like everyone that marched at March for Justice. But it's almost still handled with kid gloves. Mm. And sometimes I think the too easy excuse is to say, oh, it's under sub-judices so we can't talk about it or, um, you know, that matter or I'm sorry for the things that, that happened to her rather than just calling it out for what it is. And I think um, that's why it's such a powerful combo to have her and Grace Tame together because, you know, Grace Tame's mission came from, you know, the Let Her Speak campaign and she is not only does she call a spade a spade, she's visceral the way that she speaks and it's it's very compelling. So I think Brittany's point was more about how the matter is covered in the national media and by parliamentarians attempting to navigate it. Um, and I think her point was immediately proven if you look at the questions that were asked by journalists to the women right. straight after they had, you know, there were some fresh harrowing stories told today there was um, a damning review of what has not been progressed that was undertaken to be progressed. And yet the majority of questions, I wasn't keeping track, but it felt like the majority of questions were about the 24-hour media cycle and people wanting to get a lineup in their package tonight about Scott Morrison's texts. Mm. So I think it would have been very hard to sit on that stage giving everything that you have given only to watch exactly what you just called out play out with people putting aside an entire reform agenda about an incredibly important issue to say, but can you just expand on who it was that said that to you, what organisation they're from? And like she said, I mean, I hope one day in my career I come to give as little 
Fs, as Grace Tame does, about what the National Press Gallery think of her. Because as she said, if I wanted to expand, I would have. And the fact that, so, you know, those opportunities with a huge national audience, the questions weren't about sort of the more substantive matters. You could see that they were frustrated. Oh, and Annika, you can swear on this podcast and you're right. <laughs> okay. Zero, right. zero fucks given by zero Grace, fucks given by Grace Tame. <laughs> Just, and I, I felt it was refreshing to see her yeah. do that. It is so refreshing. Just nah, not answering that one. Stupid question. Next, please. Kind of thing. You know, mm. it's tough for politicians. You A few times she even said, was that actually your question? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I know. It was it was brutal. It was so <laughs> brutal. And yet the next journal come up and asks a similar stupid question, like the questions. Yeah, are, as a follow-on. Are yeah. you going to run for parliament? Are you interested in life and politics? Like they answer, both of them answered that question at the start, basically. And, and they have answered it so many times previously. Um, yeah, and, and and Grace did say that she'd misunderstood the question, but when she said, you asked Scott Morrison if he felt safe in the workplace. Yeah. You know, this guy travels, like, when he when he walks the corridors, there's a flying V of AFP behind him. He won't even make eye contact with you in the corridors, but, yeah, does he feel safe at work? <laughs> Unbelievable. Okay, so, to, and Grace's broader remarks in her speech, what were your takeaways uh, there? Oh, um, extremely powerful. It felt, I can't, I can't believe I get to be here and, you know, sit three metres from her and, and hear it, but the white hot rage that she brought to the speech, you know, she didn't come to miss Mm. and uh, maybe two thirds of the way through her speech, she took a big glass of water and said, you know, um, so brace yourselves. And I thought, what (laughs) has this, has this been restrained up Mm. until now? Mm. But then, yeah, she really, you know, like in Eurovision, she really went to a, a higher major for the final chorus um, to bring it all home and good on her. I think, uh, you know, I know you talk about US politics a lot on this podcast. I love it. I listen to it. I think since the Trump era, there's been this real question around authenticity and people wanting authenticity from their elected representatives. And I think some people uh, like Trump manufacture it. But when you see it, when you see the real deal, um, like like Grace Tame. I think it's very easy to understand why people want more of that in, in politics, even if she, and fair enough, is not prepared to run herself. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Um, the thing that struck me, uh, the sort of similar themes in both of their remarks um, goes to the issue that there are plenty of things now being said on this issue and there are plenty of papers that now have been written about this, but there's not a great deal of action happening yep. on this issue. And that came through quite strongly in both their speeches. And Grace Tame uh, gave the room three asks uh, in terms of actions that can be done to address uh, this issue. I, I don't know if you made note of those three asks, um, Annika, but I did, um, um, I don't know if you care, to, if you want to go to those, I'll write them to your main notes as well, just in case you didn't get all three of them. Um, but those asks, I'm interested in getting your thoughts on that and in terms of mm-hmm. what the Albanese government would do if you guys were elected. Yeah, she she wanted us to, sorry, she wanted government to take abuse seriously and, and all forms of abuse um, with actual accountability, and she wanted adequate funding for prevention and education. She went into a fair bit of detail about that, about first of all, why it's important, even though it seems like a bit of a no-brainer to me, but she reiterated for those, uh, you know, newer to the group that um, why prevention and education is specifically important, and she outlaid sort of a series of calculations that ended up being 
11 cents per student per year is what the government's actually spent on preventative education. She contrasted that with the billions spent on submarines, which I think helps make it a bit more tangible to people, the difference in percentages of an overall budget being allocated. Because, you know, the, the government, and Morrison did it again today in question time, stands up and says, oh, it's, you know, $1.1 billion and it sounds like a big figure, but unpacked, it's it's not at all a big figure. Um, and she wanted national legislation change because, you know, a, a lot of Grace Tame's quest is about amending state legislation and then, you know, using what used to be COAG or whatever to to nationalise, you know, different definitions. Um, and she she set out a few examples of where different states do it better than, than others. And I think it was good. I think she reiterated her asks a few times, which is probably how I can rattle them off now, right? It's good. It landed, you know. Um as an elected rep, I could remember. And I think, you know, what would we do? I mean, firstly, Albo was in the room and, and you know how I said that we were super late. We were 58 minutes late because we were caucusing about religious discrimination. It was Albo who said, we have to go. Like, you know, myself and, and others who are attending this cannot miss it. It is important. Like we have to juggle multiple things. Um, and so, he, you know, managed it in a way that we got there in time. Um, I didn't see Scott Morrison there. And I just saw that Scott Morrison didn't even promise to listen to it because apparently he's busy. Um, and I think, um, you know, they were talking about, I mean, Albert's talked at length about Coag versus National Cabinet and how he will work collaboratively with state governments rather than picking fights with state governments for a good lineup on the 6pm news um, or because he thinks it's to his electoral advantage. Um, and I think, you know, he has already um, met with, I know, with Grace Tame a number of times and um, wants us to work collaboratively. And then if you go to the details that um, Senator Jane McAllister, who looks after this for us and does an, an, an tremendous, tremendous job, um, we substantively wish to implement um, all of the Respect at Work recommendations. Remember, famously, the Respect at Work recommendations, there were 55 of them, the Prime Minister came out, you know, two years later and said we're adopting or accepting in part all of them. I only gave journalists a copy after the presser, or, you know, handed out photocopies during the presser so that they couldn't realise until after the fact that he was actually only accepting six and he was noting all the tricky ones. And I actually asked a question in question time today, fresh off the National Press Club about, the most important one, one that everyone keeps going on about, which is a positive duty on the part of employers to prevent sexual harassment in the workplace, a positive duty on employers to protect their workers from sexual harassment. And when you think about that being a positive duty and how that changes the culture of a workplace just by the onus being on people to ensure that it doesn't start to begin with, not to how to mop up after it's happened, um, it's it's the most important one. And when I asked him why he had not done that, he just rattled off um, that he'd done or had started to do 42 out of the 55 and that was worth something like 18 million, something like that, and that all were in train and sat down. Mm-hmm. And for those of you who don't devotedly watch Question Time, you're forgiven. It's awful. But the Prime Minister has three minutes or anyone. When you ask a question in Question Time, you've got 30 seconds to get it out and they've got three minutes to respond. So he only used 15 seconds of his three minutes to answer my question before sitting down. 
That's how little he had to say about his record after a year on Today of All Days. I was furious. And it, and it goes to, I mean, Brittany Higgins herself, I think one of the questions from uh, the journalists in the press club today um, asked uh, about some of the things, the terms of uh, action on this issue. And she went to that point. She said... Uh, this has just been completely overlooked in the debate. It's sort of moved on to all this other trivial shit. And, uh, you know, the, this issue of dealing, being proactive in workplaces is, it's not just my workplace where I used to work in Parliament House, it's workplaces across the country and that's something that needs to be focused on. The fact that the Prime Minister, they can only give you 15 seconds, shows where their, um, where their uh, yeah. you know, attitude is. And yeah, there's, yeah, there's nuance to it. And yes, that is a, a more complex issue for small business to grapple with than public sector. But that's government. Like nothing lands on the prime minister's desk that isn't complex or nuanced. That's that's how government works. So if he's not up to the task, get out of the desk for God's sake. Like he's had, they've had nine years at this point. You could tell there's only nine sitting days to go, and I'm very fed up, can't you? <laughs> well, I mean, let's t- talk about getting him out of that desk uh, and getting elbow in that desk, to turning our attention to the federal election, uh, which is due this year. First of all, when do you expect, or when is the ins- can you give us the inside mail on when we think the election will be called? Um, my, my hot tip is that he'll go 14 May, 14th of May, because the 21st of May is the last date that he can go. And I don't think he'll want to do that because that could be read as desperate. Like the easy line to say there would be that he waited until the very last minute before calling it. Whereas, you know, a whole seven days shy of that, (laughs) I don't think it will run like that. But I also think it's um, going so badly for him at the moment that he'll give it as much time as possible um, if you, you know, like if we use our emotional intelligence and, and think about the way that the brain waves of us, you know, strange members of parliament work, one of those pieces of wisdom that you might remember from coaching MPs back in your day is that people tend to cling on to the thing that worked for them the very first time. So, um, you know, for some people that might be yard signs. So they're just irrationally passionate about yard signs because they believe that their first election, what what swung it for them was the number of yard signs they had. Um, I think for Morrison and his miracle win in 2019 was more runway. I'm using the air bunnies here. I know it's an audio medium, but um, people kept saying once he got in, he just needs more runway, more runway, and they pushed the 2019 election as long as they could. And it worked out for them. So I suspect he is using his more runway um, theory, belief, and and he'll leave it as long as possible. And uh, I don't know if I've said this on the podcast before, but talking to... Go on. I, I know. I'm actually just... Actually, I'm thinking, should, should I say this? Uh, talking to someone uh, uh, who was in the company of a senior uh coalition minister before christmas um mm-hmm. had was jokingly saying to them you know why haven't you know what's going on why haven't you guys called an election yada 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 and they responded with uh, we'll only call an election when we're in front uh so how nice yeah <laughs> i mentioned my support for fixed dates <laughs> yeah i, I know oh, I'm so, I'm so <laughs> don't get me started so to your point about they need a runway yeah they they're going to leave it to the last minute if they don't, if their own private research doesn't have them in front. And if the end of the published polls are in an indication of where they are right now, then they, yes, they are behind or they're certainly in trouble. Um, and they are going to wait for as long as they possibly can. Yep. Um, think they look worried. If it's any consolation, they look worried. What gives you, I, uh, to tell me <laughs> what, 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 
what gives you that indication? What, how do you how do you sense that? I sense that because I am a little island of red surrounded by a sea of Tory blue, the north side of Brisbane. I am the northernmost electorate um, in Queensland, unless it's it's debated between Shane Newman and I because he's got further north inland, um, but I I stop at the bridge to Redcliffe, um, and that's as far as we go. So I have to my south Trevor Evans, to my north Luke Howarth. So Trevor Evans is a member of Brisbane. To my north is Luke Howarth, who's a member of Petrie. And to my west is the member for Dixon, Peter Dutton. So it's um, it means that we see one another at events and things along the borders. And I have noticed a sharp uptick in activity from Trevor Evans to my south. Um, I have driven past any number of mobile offices um, in the past couple of months that I haven't noticed before in my two and a half years in this job. And I do um, a regular radio panel on Brisbane Commercial Radio with Julian Simmons, who's a member for Ryan, and he is sounding increasingly rattled um, week to week. And we, we do that on a Friday afternoon, so it's always a bit of a recap of how the week's gone. So you sort of keep a bit of a ledger of who's had a better week. And um, I think since Christmas... Um, we're running hot. We're on a streak. Scott Morrison has had a pretty shocking start to the year, uh, albeit I was overseas and I, it was, I was still picking up how bad a uh, start to the year he had um, through, the, through the, uh, the, the wonderful internet, calling for miners to be driving forklifts, which, um, as someone yep. remarked to me, it sounded like something that would be lifted from the Batuta Advocate or the Chaser. Yeah. Um, uh, apparently had a really lacklustre um, press club recently, um, Text, yep. text from um, his former colleague in the New South Wales Liberal Party and the former Premier, Gladys Berejiklian, referring to him as a yep. hor- horrible, horrible <laughs> person, more concerned with politics than people. If that's a negative campaign slogan that Labor can run, um, that's it right <laughs> there. Um, you know, it's starting to feel like I remember in 2007, up until, th- I don't know if you're testing your memory here as well, Annika, but up until mm-hmm. 2007, it felt like that John Howard was Teflon and yeah, their government made lots of mistakes. They, you know, they they set a sort of a, a code of practice for their ministers, and none of them sort of managed to sort of get over that bar. And he constantly had to sack them all. But it just didn't ever seem to stick to John Howard, and and they always seemed to have got the breaks for them. Uh, and then in two thousand and seven, I just started to notice small things where the wheels started to come off um, Howard. Um, and then sure enough, obviously we had that incredibly um, amazing historic win this year the start of this year seems to have that similar vibe to it for Scott Morrison and the coalition. I don't know if um, you've felt the same watching his performance in the last um, month or so. I, I think that when you look across the term, all of the big calls have been right. And I know that a lot of progressives, um, worried about some of those big calls but all of the big calls have been right and I know a lot of people have mocked what Albo when he says you know we're going to kick with the wind in the last quarter I've had to explain the the, the, the footy um, analogy to, to different people but increasingly it looks like that is the case but I also think um a big call that now as we pan out is incredibly pertinent was when we decided to just out and out call the Prime Minister a liar. And I remember the first day that we did that, and I think Penny Wong was one of the first people to do it, 
the National Press Gallery arced up because it's sort of not done. It's 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 a very um, bold, you know, um, aggressive thing to do, I guess. But um, we felt that the evidence the evidence was in, and this is the evidence that was in public, let alone sort of what moderates say to us in the corridors or things that you hear, like you say, in New South Wales or. Um, and since that moment, look at what's happened. Um, Emmanuel Macron, back to sim, um, unintentionally, obviously, but um, that, that, that moment was, I think, pivotal because since then the Prime Minister has been challenged over and over again over his honesty, mm. which speaks to his integrity, speaks to his character. And, you know, we couldn't orchestrate if we tried the leaking of the texts from the deputy prime minister about the prime minister, this is, um, you know, I don't want to get too inside baseball of it, but this is people on Morrison's own side wanting this to come out. Um, and I think one of the most important things when you think about the election and people ask me how I feel about my seat, what I learned last time was that, things can change really fast and how the election felt on the ground in my suburbs was very different at day 35 when the election was called compared to the last two weeks at pre-poll compared to polling day itself. You could feel the mood descend across those five weeks. So I still feel like I feel, I feel positive. I feel optimistic. Um, I think we can win and I hope that we do, but I also remember that things can go wrong very quickly um, and we know that if Scott Morrison is good at one thing it is campaigning and I am convinced that if he is spending his days doing things it is not how to reform women's respect in the workplace it is what negative DLs are going out in what seats and what do they need to say mm. and what do I need to say in the parliament so that when those DLs go out it has maximum effect so um, I guess what I would what I would say in short to your question is that I think these questions about his character help bake in people's impression of, of him as a dishonest person. I think they already had that instinct because Australia's very quick to, to pick a fraud. But having this sort of evidence come out bit by bit, week by week, helps bake that assessment in. So no matter what he throws at us in the formal campaign period, hopefully that that impression is is baked in and, and people vote on it. Yeah, and the cynic in me then tries to then consider all of these missteps and, and stuff-ups that Morrison has uh, done and, 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 the, and to the remarks that you have just said about, you know, this dishonesty. Are these, is this enough to be uh, translating into switching of votes in seats like Lilly, uh, in seats, you know, critical seats that are a pathway to government for Labor? Mm. Um, you know, Bill Clinton always said about campaigns, make it about their lives, not about ours, and everything will be okay. Um, are, are, do you think um, Labor, to this point, and certainly going to the campaign, are going to be able to construct a, a story, a narrative, that is about the lives of ordinary Australians and what's at stake at this election? Yes, we are. And at the moment, what we are doing is in stark contrast to what they are doing, which is talking about themselves, fighting amongst themselves, trying to substantiate themselves. But... We, I think, when we talk about a better life for working families, when we talk about you know, 
good, secure jobs and we talk about a future made in Australia, those are three rock-solid, important, um, people-based policies that I have found people respond to. People, you know, people say we don't talk enough about the future. We talk about it all the time. We talk about a future made in Australia. And I feel like I'm always talking about the opportunities in renewables and what we need to do about what opportunities there are in the recycling off the back end once we produce renewable power and how that brings good local jobs back to the north side of Brisbane where we have a proud industrial history but have seen a lot of stuff offshore in the past couple of weeks, uh, past couple of years, sorry, since um, since these people have been in power. Um, I think, you know, we align with our union friends about needing good, secure jobs and that being the focus for us to talk to people about this election and a better life for working families. The, the number one thing that people bring up with me when I do mobile offices is various iterations of cost of living, whether that's um, how GP costs have skyrocketed, whether they can't get their hands on a rat and when they do, it costs them 50 bucks at the petrol station, mm. um, petrol prices, how they've gone up, I think, those are things that people actually want to talk to me about rather than the argy-bargy of what happens at question time. Um, but I do think when you mentioned the earlier the, the PM had a fairly ordinary job at the National Press Club a few weeks back, when he couldn't name the price of milk, bread and petrol, I, I do think that's telling for, for two reasons. Firstly, he, ha- he said that when only six weeks earlier, eight weeks earlier, you know, in the run-up to Christmas, all he could talk about was how labour was going to make petrol more expensive. So the fact that he couldn't tell you what petrol prices were, despite mounting this argument about how we were going to make it worse, shows how one-eyed and disingenuous he is. Mm. And secondly, I think the fact that he couldn't name the, the price of a loaf of bread or a bottle of milk, you know, no one expects the PM to be popping out to buy those things, except for the fact that he posts that he does. Like he posts on social media, I'm just popping off to the shops to get something for Jen. I'm just popping down to the shops because we're all in this together and wear your mask. So the fact that he has chosen to stake his claim as a suburban daggy dad who pops to the shops um, means that he is accountable for knowing the price of bread and the price of milk. And and he should be held to account for not actually knowing those things um, because it shows that he isn't the person that he says he is. I guess the follow-up question at that um, press, uh, that National Press Club uh, um, 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 speech should have been: Well, how much did it cost you in terms of materials to build that chook house that you got um, that you did in the backyard? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, are you a mitre ten or a Bunnings kind of guy? You know, mm. Mm. Uh, they would have they would have been great. How, how full of shit? What do you? Where did we find out? <laughs> Yeah, that's it. When you hung those Christmas lights on the ladder and the ladder was nowhere near where you would have needed to be to hang the Christmas lights, um, what was the price of the ladder? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, the last time Federal Labor won an election outright was 15 years ago, 2007. I was in my second year. Of great the, night. Yeah, great yeah. night. I was in my second year as a, a TW organiser living in Adelaide. Um, what were you doing in 2007? I was at uni. I was at uni and I was uh, I was volunteering in the um, electorate of Peachtree where Yvette Darth overcame an 8% margin to to take that back. It was the bellwether seat um, and it was a very good night. And I think about that night and certainly not to suggest or any disservice to those who worked on the campaign in 2010 because a win is a win. Um, getting into government is what we're here to do and change people's lives and implement good labour policy. But I just think about this election 
And that if we don't win this election, you know, it's been 15 years since we won an election outright. Um, I feel like, you know, this potentially could be seen as one of the more darker moments in the party's history since the split. A lot is riding on this election campaign. Um, you know, if we were to, like when we won in 2007, we won so well that I kind of thought that Labor would be in government for two or three or four cycles. And I thought what would it would do then it, by creating bookmarks between a Rudd-Labor uh, ascendancy and the Hawke-Keating years, that the, the Howard years would be seen as a, a bit of an aberration or a fluke. But what's happened is that, you know, we haven't had a lot of success. Um, you know, we, we know what, we don't need to repeat the history or, or go over the, re-litigate re the history of the Rudd-Gillard-Rudd years. But if we were to lose this election, then I now start to worry that it looks like the Hawke Kidding is was the fluke and, you know, all of a sudden we look like Liverpool Football Club. You know, we were big in the 80s. Do you get a sense... My husband, who is a devoted listener of yours, will appreciate that reference. Well, I, I, I'm the nerd about... Mad Liverpool <laughs> I, I am the nerd about whether it be Liverpool or Nottingham Forest, but anyway. Do you get a sense from your colleagues within the caucus about this, this sense of urgency going into this year, about the importance of winning this election and, also, and i and i don't ask this question in a way to say oh, if we lose it's a you know um, no no sorry i'm not asking this question to suggest that um that we're gonna win you know i'm not implying that you know because i know the polls look great at the moment yada 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 but we've all been here before my yeah. question really goes to the point is does the caucus realize the importance of this campaign because i think this is the this is arguably one of the most important election campaigns for federal labor in a generation yes we do. I think one of my sort of fundamental moments coming into this place um, after getting elected, which took a 10-day count back, is how depressed everybody was to be in opposition. And they, I remember they said, oh, it's so nice to have some new people because you're the only sort of burst of hope around the joint and we have done our best to, to be that this term. But there are many people in our shadow cabinet who have now done three straight terms of opposition um, because they came in in 2013 when we had just lost. So they are now looking at three terms in opposition. And I think, you know, you learn more out of a loss than a win. They have now faced three losses in a row in opposition. And something that comes up again and again and again in caucus is trying to get the line right on things that, you know, making decisions that represent our labour values that also get us to government. And I do think um, that argument about you can have the most beautiful progressive policy, it's worth nothing if it sits in your top drawer. Mm. And I think we've had to make some big calls this term and we've still got some big calls to make this week that are about making sure we are as electable as possible because we cannot do anything if we are not in government. Um, opposing things for righteous sake in opposition might make for a, um, you know, a, a, a feel-good speech in the chamber at night, but it doesn't change the lives of the people that we've come here um, to represent. So we do very much feel the burden of that, um, let me assure you. Um, what was the second part of your question? No, I think that was it. I think, I mean, I just, I just, I just, I, I, I yeah, I just, oh my God. I, yeah, I just wanted yeah. to get a sense about the, 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 the vibe within the caucus. Oh, I know what I was going to say. Um, I think, 
I get a bit of feedback from my branches and, um, you know, people when I talk to in the party about they want a bit of razzle-dazzle, they want a bit of vision. And I do think, you know, it's a bit like <laughs> we have put out a lot of policies um, in, the, in the last quarter um, that are really good policies. But I don't think, you know, you're talking about 07, Kevin 07, and, and we all got such fond memories of the dynamism of that. Fresh leadership, remember? New leadership. Um, this isn't that election. This isn't that election. This, Because of COVID, each state has had such a different experience of the past three years that it is very difficult to pull together one national message. And while that is our job, it is, it is just not the case that you could say these these two or three things we can, um, you know, that, that are positive and dynamic we can unite around because that, that would just not be the case if you ask people in the electorate of Cowan in Western Australia compared to my electorate in Willie compared to the electorate of Chisholm in Victoria. It, and I think that is what it is. We could wish that the state of politics is better and hopefully it will be if we end nine years of liberal rule. But, but that is where it is at now, and that is why I think this election will be a seat-by-seat knife fight based on the local issues in that seat and not a competing uh, debate of ideas about the future of the country. I think we do offer that, and I think if you unpack our future made in Australia stuff, it's, it's all there, and I'm excited to get stuck into it in government. But I think when I think about what people actually come and talk to me about at mobile offices, it is very much... I can't get my mum into an aged care facility because we've got shortages in Queensland or I, I cannot I cannot get my hands on a rat test so I can't get to work and we need the money. So that's that's where I'm at. I think this this will be fought seat by seat. And if you if you want to contribute the best way you can do that is by picking a seat that we need to flip and and giving it your time. Um, Queensland is such a critical state. Uh, in terms of pathway to to winning government in the in, in in forming government in the lower house, there are thirty seats in the Sunshine State. Labor holds six of them. At the last federal election in twenty nineteen, Labor had a primary of twenty six point six percent. Not even a three in front of it, a two. Um, what are the seats that are critical that need to be flipped that uh, in Queensland that uh, you want to sort of lift up for our listeners to start to pay attention to? The seat of Longman, the seat of Leichhardt the seat of Flynn, the seat of Brisbane. And I think if you look at um, the seat of Brisbane, for example, which is next to me, um, the issues of integrity, of climate change, of women's respect and treatment in the workplace, they are very hot issues somewhere like Brisbane. But... Like I said, seat by seat knife fight. If you look at Lycar, it is about jobs and unemployment and access to GP services or Flynn or Capricornia. It's about what future is there for the region and what do those jobs look like and who is putting things through a pipeline that allows people to rely upon good, secure jobs. Um, I think in Queensland, as ever, we need to get our primary up. Um, and I'm and I'm confident that we are doing that, but I think um, as ever, the protest vote is crucial in Queensland um, because we have not only the likes of um, Pauline Hanson running around here, Clive Palmer is also from here. Obviously, the Greens are a constant presence, and 
you know, somewhere like Lily, we had nearly a 10% protest vote last time when you add up the Palmer vote, the Paul Hanson vote, the Fraser Anning vote, remember him? Wow. The Socialist Alliance, um, and that's that's separate from the Greens, which is another 15%. So where those where those votes go is is crucial, and, and it's always a stitch-up. You know, Palmer always puts it on that he hates everybody, but he always votes for Scott Morrison in the end. He always preferences them. And so the tricky thing for us is how we resource and how we get the message out to people that um, voting for Clive Palmer or Pauline Hanson or any of that type is not a vote to blow up the show. It is a vote to keep the status quo. If you are voting for Clive Palmer, you are not destroying the joint. You're not telling all pollies to go jump. All you're doing is making sure that, like, that Morrison stays at the lodge. So we have to get that message out there. We have to spend resources getting that message out there because the difference between how we went in 2016 and 2019 is that people didn't think that Labor was a protest vote because we were not the underdogs. We were expected to win. Mm. So the nuance of all that I think is still to come, which is why I was saying the 35 days are just absolutely crucial and no one should be thinking that any seat is, is won or lost for us at this point when we know that that moves so fast. And, and, you know, like, you know, we've talked about the, we haven't talked about the Canberra convoy, but we should because they're here in our building at the moment. Um, how they vote, how they, you know, express their fury about mandates or lockouts or sovereign citizen rights or whatever it is, is crucial. And, and you know, you know that Liberals are spending all their time making sure that those votes, you know, doesn't matter where they go number one as long as they come back to the Liberals at the end, keeps them in power. And if people shut off because they're disengaged, if people tune out because it all looks like a total shit show, that only benefits Scott Morrison. It only keeps them in power because you have to vote for change. I think broadly speaking down here in Victoria, the attitude amongst voters towards Scott Morrison and the Liberals is that they abandoned the people of Victoria at our hour of need. Um, also, that there have been they the Liberal brand is quite wishy-washy on the issue of vaccinations that particularly the Victorian state liberals have really kind of made, made a bed with all of these anti-vaccine nut, nut jobs, right? Um, which is just a, a brutally stupid strategy. How is this playing out? In the, as you said in your earlier remarks, the experiences of uh, voters and the community broadly across the country in terms of uh, dealing with COVID is so diverse. Mm. What What is the experience... Um, and how will COVID play out in the minds of voters when they go to the polls in, uh, in most likely May this year? And how will they think about Scott Morrison? How will they think about Labor, do you think? Well, how long is a piece of string? Um, I guess it's a question of whether, uh, let's pick 14th of May as the day, whether we are still in an actual day-to-day crisis like we are now, in our aged care residences um, where, where, you know, small businesses are still in a state of, of reduced hours each day or shutting each day because they can't get the staff, sort of where labour shortages and supply shortages are at, whether it's a question of still managing that in an, in an urgent pandemic way or whether by then it has switched over to a more endemic how we come out, you know, sort of Biden and the bill back better. Mm probably came a bit early, didn't it? Because um, I don't think... So some states, 
like WA, I presume, like Queensland a little, are, are um, in a position to think about what, you know, what kind of future we want and what, what opportunities are there in Queensland because, you know, the conditions have changed the way that they have. Some areas of Australia, most even, are still desperately clinging on um, and not in a position to think luxuriously about alternative visions of the future. They're thinking about who actually understands my problem and who can help me with it tonight. Yeah. It's, 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 what do you reckon? I, I mean, I don't know. Like, I mean, I've literally yeah, lived in a yeah, bubble. It's for, a cute, like, yeah. I haven't, I've hardly been outside my state. I've hardly been outside my city. I've hardly been outside my home for the better part of two years. So, I mean, even the sort mm. of the views of, you know, when I go home to country Victoria and catch up and see my mum and sort of even hearing her about what her attitudes towards COVID are, are markedly different to what it was like for Melbourne. And so yeah, you extrapolate That's that across exactly. the country, then it must be even far more diverse. And I, I, I just, I'm super interested in it. I mean, I guess we'll find out when people go to vote, but like, you know, your state right now is going through an outbreak. Um, there is, mm. you know, there's some tragic news today in the, in that it's the highest, uh, it's the re highest reported numbers of COVID deaths that your state's experienced thus far. Um, but yep. also some great news in that you've hit, reached 90% double vax, which is fantastic. Um, yep. You know, I, who knows, where does Queensland go from here? I, I, have you turned the corner or is, it, is, is, it, is the numbers going to get worse? I mean, I don't know, like it's just sort of, you just don't, it's hard to predict what the future, the immediate future looks like, let alone what's going to be like in three or four months. Well, that's right. And the other thing about May is that we'll be entering well, in Queensland, we'll be entering winter. I imagine it gets colder far sooner than that down south, down your way. But, um, and we will have the overlap of the first flu season in a few years with probably the fourth wave of COVID. And whether or not these, you know, these um, you know, PPE shortages, all those kinds of things have been fixed by then, I don't know. And I, I just have no confidence that this is a government that will be able to to fix those things in time. The federal government, I mean. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it will, I guess we'll, we'll see. And I wonder if it will play out. I mean, certainly another narrative that I think it's sticking certainly down south is that the Morrison government have abrogated all their responsibilities to the states. Uh, and I wonder if that's mm. the case in Queensland as well. I mean, is, is that a vibe on the ground that people sort of think, well, Morrison's done nothing and they've basically left it up to the Palaszczuk government to do all the hard lifting, heavy lifting? Yeah, I think so. I think, I mean, if you look at, the, the sentiment that was expressed at the um, October 2020 election, that was very much how Queenslanders felt. Um, I do think, I mean, if you sort of, I'm pivoting out to the commentariat now, but there seems to be observation that initially COVID response favoured incumbent governments and that's sort of how election results um panned out look if you look at our state elections if you look at some of the overseas elections but increasingly as the pandemic rolls on as things are not um you know as mistakes are made um as systemic problems are unearthed and not fixed it's starting to punish incumbent governments like if you look at sort of canadia just canadia oh my goodness <laughs> so like canada scraping over the line um you know some of the results in in europe and I think, you know, these imminent tests, we've got the by-elections in New South Wales on this Saturday. We've got the South Australian election in March where Stephen Marshall looks kind of on the ropes mm. because of his COVID response. Maybe the tide is turning and it isn't favouring incumbent governments anymore. Though the challenge for us is that ultimately we have to win more seats in order to become the federal Labor government 
and this environment does make it very hard for candidates out in the field. It really does. So please show a bit of love to your Labor candidate out there um, because it is so difficult to to get yourself out there. Like local media, my local papers have folded during COVID. So for me, it's just the Daily Metro in Brisbane, which is the Korea Mail, News Corp, tabloid. That's it. Like it, it's it's that or bust for me. I don't have a weekly local paper that, that talks about the good works of, of my community. So if you are a candidate and you are trying to get yourself out there, you have to um, either do the, the good old-fashioned door knocking and phone banking, which is stop-start because of Omicron. Like that's currently um, door knocking is currently paused in Queensland. Um, or you have to pay for billboards or advertising or what have you, which requires cash. So ultimately, if it is an environment that favours incumbent members rather than candidate challenges, that is not that is very tricky for us because we've got to we've got to flip these seats. We've got to flip eight. It's huge. Um, how let's wrap before we wrap up. How uh, anyone listening to the show who is a resident in. Uh, Queensland or in certainly in Brisbane anyway or South East Queensland, how can you get involved in your campaign? Firstly, hello, hope you're well <laughs> to those voters. Um, I am annikawells.com.au and you can go slash campaign, slash donate, slash issues to, to find out more about what we're doing and how you can help slash volunteers, another one. Um, and Annika has just one in because my parents decided to remove an in for simplicity. God bless them. Hello, mum and dad, and occasional listeners of your podcast. Um, so, And then obviously I am on all of the socials, including TikTok. I was the second MP to join TikTok after Dan Andrews, and that is my proud legacy. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful and wonderful, wonderful way to end the show. Uh, Annika Wells, thank you so much for taking time out of your pretty busy schedule in Canberra today to come on the show and have a chat to us all. We wish you the best of luck with the campaign um, and maybe we might even touch base with you as we get closer to uh, E-Day. I would love that. I can give you some some field reporter, um, like boundary rider commentary yeah. of, of what it's like across, like I said, across all these seats we're trying to pick up in, in Queensland. And, and hopefully after that, I can talk to you from the corridors of a, of a federal Labor government in the, in the blue carpet here at Parliament House. And if not, you will find me on your floor working my way through your whiskey cart uh, at some point post-election. <laughs> Well, let's hope it's not the latter, but you're always welcome. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank yeah. you so Fingers much. Fingers crossed. Annika. Thanks, Annika. Thanks for listening to Socially Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcast or Podchaser. And to get all the latest on Socially Democratic, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday.